Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. I'm excited. Um, this week we're going to start a new um, cycle. We're going to start a new introduction today to unlocking Galatians, Galutia in the Hebrews, Hebraically. Um, but before we get into the introduction, I want to just go a little bit back in my history for you because it was over a decade ago that I started to really struggle and um, just feel a real vexing as I was sitting in the church pews. Just a real vexing with this, just knowing that there was more, just knowing that there was more and a deeper hunger for the word. And I really started to be convicted that I needed to look into the Torah because I knew that I, I wanted to keep his commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my mitzvot. And I started to look into the Torah and I knew that if I was going to take the step that I was feeling convicted to take, which was to step away from paganism, syncretism, step into Yahweh's Shabbat, and then step into his feasts and festivals, and to step into healthy living, what I would consume and call food, I knew that I was going to do that with fear and trembling. Because I was scared that I would make a mistake and I did not, for the fear of Yahuwah, want to do anything that was legalistic or anything that was against my Messiah. So I knew that I would have to deal with the book of Galatians. So I set aside a good six months of my life and I literally devoured the book of Galatians in fear and trembling knowing that I had to deal with that and be reconciled to it before I was about to make the step that I was feeling convicted to make, which was, like I said, to step into his feasts, his festivals, his Shabbat, and how to live a holy, kosher lifestyle. But I knew that there were charges and rumors already of Phariseeism, legalism, Judaizer, all those little terms that are attached to me. But I didn't want to do something out of ignorance. I was going to do it with fear and trembling because I knew that my salvation was assured and I had a responsibility to be truthful to the word, not tradition. So that's the backdrop. So I remember going and seeing um, Avi Ben Mordecai in person and listening to him. And he had done a, uh, a commentary on Galatians back in the day. And it really, really tugged on my heartstrings. Because I could see what he was saying. And I could look and go, oh, instead of the institutionalized church, which, you know, their theology, they got Galatians all figured out. Yeah. I mean, I've been reading and reading and reading in preparation, much study in preparation for this teaching. And the institutionalized church, the commentators, the theologians, they have got Galatians figured out. It's easy. Paul is against the law the law is done away with, and now we are free at liberty in Messiah, and we are under the law of Christ. It's simple. They have got it figured out. It's very concise. They have got 1,700 years of theology behind that doctrine. But I don't believe that doctrine. So therefore, what do you do with Galatians? 
What do you do with those law verses? Well, what really tugged at my heartstrings over a decade ago was the commentary that Avi Ben Mordecai brought out that was a juxtaposition between the oral law, what is not written, and the written law, what is written. And that really is like, oh, okay, it's the oral law against the written law. And I think many of us, we were like, okay, that gives me permission to move into his Shabbats, gives me permission to move into his Moedim. And I've taught the Torah portion, 54 portions, for 10 years. So after about 500 times of standing up for pe- before people, studying and going through the Torah and the cycles year in, year out, year in, over 500 times, some things started to really trouble me as a Hebrew roots or Messianic person because I was spending so much time in the Torah. I even did a year of teaching the half Torah, threading it through to the prophets, that some things were starting to trouble me that were now I'm starting to question the paradigm that I had accepted, which Avi Ben Mordecai had propagated, that it was the oral law against the written law, an opposition, a conflict. Because I would start to see throughout the cycle of Scripture distinctions between heirs with Abraham. A covenant called the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 24, where all Israel said, yes, Yahweh, by faith, what you have said we will do. And then I would see how they broke that covenant by the sin of the golden calf. And then I would see in Deuteronomy 31 that there was this book of the law that was outside the ark of the covenant that was a witness against them. And then I would see through the prophets that the prophets were always getting Israel to repent and return back under this schoolmaster or tutor, the book of the law. And then I would see that Messiah was had come and he had brought them into covenant, a new covenant given as Torah based upon better promises, Hebrews 8, 6, and everything started to click. And now I had to deal with Galatians again. So understand, when I'm teaching you today, it's based upon a lot of experience, a lot of mistakes that I've made, And I know the doctrine of the church, the institutionalized church. I know it. I taught it. But also understand, I know the doctrine of the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement. I taught it for over a decade. But where I'm coming from now is that I've been, I realize, emancipated Not to lawlessness, but I've been emancipated, meaning I am an heir 
of everything that my Father has for me. And now that means that I can connect and relate back to Torah in the fullness of the legal realm of royalty that it was meant for me from the beginning. So Galatians really is not about lawlessness as the institutionalized church has interpreted but it's also not about the oral law versus the written law because I realized that Avi's premise was based upon a back translation of Aramaic by Andrew Gabriel Roth, an Aramaic text that doesn't exist and that there are no words that are used in this back translation that exist in any known manuscript today. So that doesn't sit with me because it's an assumption. And now as I've got more mature, I've realized I need to stick not to what tugs on my heartstrings, oral law versus written law, but I need to stick with what the text says. And I'm going to take the experience that Yahweh has given me from reading the Torah and teaching it over 500 times and being able to see so much more and now bring that forth to you. So as an introduction, I want to tell you where I've come from because I've made a lot of mistakes. But I believe it's my responsibility then to take that and use that for Yahuwah's glory. Instead of to hide from that, is to admit your mistakes... Admit your experience and inexperience and then go forth from there. So with that said, let's deal with the book of the Galatians. I'm super excited to be able to delve into it. I believe that Galatians is a polemic addressing the book of the law and the book of the covenant dichotomy. The book of the law is the law that is not of faith. Because they never agreed to it. It was imposed. It took no faith. In fact, it was imposed because they broke fidelity. The law is not of faith, Rav Shaliak Shaul says. The book of the covenant is of faith, right? All that Yahweh has said we shall do. Exodus 19, that is a faith. And there we see the dichotomy that sets the stage for what we're about to get into. Because church history, the institutionalized church history towards Galatians, unfortunately, Galatians has been abused. But the institutionalized church has abused it and has said, well, we've figured out, we've got the final word on Galatians. Paul is doing away with the law, and therefore you're free now in the law of Christ. Syncretism, paganism, and everything that comes with it, well, that's all under the law of Christ. But you and I go, no, this is not what it's about. You see, the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses, enjoined with a whole lot of church rhetoric, is what many of us have been abused with over the years. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because really, I want us to look, before we go into the legal terminology of the book of the Galatians, because Shaul uses emancipatio language, 
or exagerazo and adoptio, adoption or huathesia language. What he's talking about is emancipation and adoption legal language to portray something, the legal status of Israel as it relates to covenant Torah. We have to understand this. Before we get into the book of Galatians, we have to understand that Rav Sholiach Shaul is going to be using legal language of emancipation and adoption as it relates to Israel's relationship to the Torah. So it's got nothing to do with lawlessness. It's got everything to do with your relationship to Torah. Everything to do with that. You see, natural Israel, just like the natural son before emancipation, could own nothing and had no greater legal status in relationship to the law than the slave. Than the slave. It's only once a time is set forth by the father that the son, like Israel, finds itself declared emancipated and adopted as a genuine heir in relation to the Torah. Heir to his father's possessions and now has a different legal status in regard to Torah. The legal status of an heir, because you're now heirs to the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2, that you were locked out from because of the sin of the golden calf. So you were put under a schoolmaster, under a tutor, because you couldn't be trusted, because you broke contract, you were unfaithful, so therefore you were tutored under the book of the law, Until the time of reformation, when the seed would come and emancipate you, not to lawlessness, heaven forbid, but to the right standing as an heir, able to inherit everything in the Torah that was given to Abraham. So the book of Galatians is about your emancipation to being an heir in Torah. It's your legal standing in Torah. Do you still view yourself as under the law, the book of the law, yet to be emancipated? Or are you now emancipated to do covenant Torah like Abraham did? You see, do we want to live as children, nephos, in our relationship to Torah, the book of the law, or as emancipated heirs, which is book of the covenant because it's all Torah it's all about Torah Galatian but Yahusha changes your legal status to it that's the point or you can remain blind to your change of status and interpret the Torah as either a it's done away with we've locked that doctrine up right or b the same as the unregenerate Judaism Both have no better legal status than that of a household slave in their relationship to the Torah. And I want to have 
my legal status of emancipation so that I can relate to the Torah in the legal status that Yahusha has enabled me to by his blood ratification. So Galatians is all about Torah. That is the amazing truth of it. You see, Galatians is the foundation to understanding our legal status as heirs of the covenants of Torah, the covenants of promise. It's book of the covenant as opposed to the book of the law. One doesn't do away with another. Emancipation restores you and your relationship to Torah. But that's not done through the book of the law. It's only done through that which was accepted by faith. Shemot, Exodus 19.4 to Shemot 24.11, verse 11. All that Yahweh has said, we will do. Freedom and liberty. That's what it is. Freedom and liberty for believers is the main thrust of the book. But it's not freedom from the law to syncretism, paganism, and eventual lawlessness. Yah forbid. But rather freedom from the book of the law and a return to Messiah's blood-ratified book of the covenant given as Torah, Hebrews 8, 6, based upon the promises of Abraham. Better promises, right? That's what we're talking about. You can't separate Galucha, Galatians, from its original Tanakh basis. And that's where the institutionalized church has gone terribly astray. Because Galatians involves obedience to Torah, but it's the book of the covenant Torah that was accepted by faith at the mountain. Because that's where you become heirs, emancipated to become heirs. You understand, even in Roman law, and Rav Shiliak Shaul was very familiar with Roman law. And he says, you know, a, a, a child is under guard until they're 14 years old, where the time set forth by the father, even though they were a natural son, it was as if they had the same rights as a household slave. Even though they were a natural son. Oh, you knew they had a different future in hold for them. But until the time of emancipation, they were, had no different legal rights than that of a household slave. They couldn't inherit their father's estate. They couldn't get the inheritance. But it's once they were emancipated at that time set forth, which was about 14 years old, then... Their status, their legal status changed in relation to law, Torah, if you will, heirs. And that's what we're talking about. This is just an introduction, but I want to paint that big picture for you before we absorb ourselves into the text and we trip all over ourselves, not understanding what is going on with this polemic between law and law. We have to deal with the law verses, right? And we have to deal with them differently than they have been dealt with for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Because it's a travesty to think that Yahuwah gave Israel the book of the covenant Torah to place them into bondage. That's a travesty. 
No way does liberty mean being liberated from obedience to the covenant. There's no way. Messiah liberates or emancipates Israel from what was imposed upon them at Exodus chapter 32. And he frees us to return to the nuptial canopy of Mount Sinai, where all that Yahweh has said, the book of the covenant, Torah, we will do. That is where our inheritance lies. Our inheritance doesn't lie with the book of the law. How do we relate to Torah as a child in immaturity or as one emancipated in maturity? 500 Torah portions later, I realized in the Messianic movement, I was so gung-ho about Torah, but I was still relating to it as a child. And Judaism is a child because they haven't been emancipated by Yahusha. And I was relating to Torah no different than rabbinic Judaism. And that is the pitfall of the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movement. But 500 Torah portions later, I start to see, well, hang on a minute. No, I'm not lawless, heaven forbid. But I have been emancipated as an heir because of Yahushua that I relate back to the Torah of Abraham who never knew a Levite and never knew a tabernacle. This is maturing, and this has taken time and seasoning. And just like Rav Shaliak Shaul, who had time and seasoning, when he brought forth this message, what did they accuse him of? Being lawless. And that's the same accusation that is thrust at me. Because again, this is the accusation thrown by children. Because they don't understand the maturity of emancipation. Are we doing away with the Torah at Torah to the tribes? Heaven forbid. These are the words of Rav Shaliak Shaul. Yah forbid. But how we relate to it is no longer as a child. But in the maturity as a son who has inherited Everything that the Father has for him. And everything for the fa- that the Father has for you is wrapped up in Yahusha and his Malkitzedic priesthood. Everything. Everything. You see, it was the fallen nature of Israel that quickly changed things at Shemot, Exodus 32, which went beyond what was agreed to. Let's understand that. It went beyond what was agreed to by blood ratification in Exodus Shemot 24, juxtaposing the law that was agreed to by faith and the law that was imposed upon, not faith, is the polemic of Galatians. Is the polemic of Galatians. We need to realize how certain passages have been orientated by theologians and have been perceived as anti law. Anti law. When in reality, the major theme in Shaul's letter is a warning about some kind of perversion of the good news, the Bessorah. Now, it's my aim 
these next weeks to unearth what the perversion is and then to expose it, to peel back that veneer and learn from it and grasp hold of the message of redemption that this amazing book contains. Because Galatians and Zadokah, righteousness, we have to understand that righteousness, Zadokah, is to be understood in its threefold echad plurality. Number one, righteousness must be understood, number one, by our individual conversion, firstly. Number two, that individual conversion then brings about a corporate covenant inclusion. Yahweh doesn't want you to isolate yourself upon a hill. He wants you to be included corporately with the community. And number three, that then equips one for the lifelong journey of personal transformative sanctification in Zadokah. Number one, I've got to be individually purchased. Number two, I then come into corporate righteousness. And number three, we then work together in corporate and individual sanctification because it is better for two to travel together than one alone, right? Because when I fall, brother, you can pick me up, right? And that is the importance of the fellowship of Zadokah. It's not just an individualistic concept like what's taught today in the institutionalized church. Me and Jesus. No, it's not. That's Western individuality. And that's wrong. To Shaul, it wasn't enough to be individually justified before Yahweh. That wasn't enough. You needed to be interconnected with the community of saints, Kedoshah. Kedoshim, excuse me, interconnected in covenant, and you needed to share in that same blood ratification entry by Yahusha. You see, we need to understand Shaul was on the cusp of the law, that transition point. Some things still needed to be figured out, yes, and they needed to be discussed, yes, and the message went out to the nations, yes. Those from Jerusalem, well, They were trying to define what the rules of corporate inclusion were. That's what we have to understand. They were trying to to define what the rules of corporate inclusion were. And Shaul called them what? Those who were propagating another gospel. So before we even get into Galatians, we need to, in the 21st century, figure out what is the true gospel. So... It's a good point right now. Ten authenticating proofs of the true gospel, the Besorah. This is the true Malkitzedic covenant gospel because there are a lot of false gospels going out today, especially in relation to Malkitzedic. People have jumped on this Malkitzedic bandwagon and bandwagon, excuse me, and gone off on their own tangents because everybody wants to have a little bit of their own secret knowledge and make disciples after themselves but we need to stick to the scripture and we need to be talmudim disciples together 10 authenticating proofs of the gospel number one the book of the covenant and the book of the law are not synonymous deuteronomy 31 verse 26 number two 
There has been a change of law. Hebrews 7.12, 7.18, and Genesis 49.10. Number three, the rightly dividing point of the law is Exodus 24.11. We keep the covenant Torah from Genesis 1.1 to Exodus 24.11, not the maintenancing, added, imposed book of the law of carnal commandments that is against us. I'm not saying you abrogate Torah. Let it never be. But we must rightly divide it, dovetailing into the rest of the word, which is what? Yah breathes for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in the Malkitzedic, 2 Timothy 3.6. And number four, it was the book of the law that was added after the golden calf breach. A false gospel... Listen, a false gospel propagates that only the Levitical priesthood was added after the golden calf breach. But Hebrews 7.11 exposes this as another gospel. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. Well, what law did the people receive under the Levitical priesthood? It can't be the Torah, Book of the Covenant, because they received that in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. Before the invention of the Levitical priesthood, this leaves the only law available that they could receive under the later Levitical priesthood was the added Book of the Law after the golden calf breach and the invention of the Levitical priesthood. Number five, the book of Ezekiel isn't millennium, millennial, but a collection of 13 date-stamped scrolls. Number six, Jeremiah 33.17 speaks to the kingship and Levitical conditional covenant promise outlined in 1 Kings 9.5 and Jeremiah 22 verse 30 which Israel broke, did they not? They broke the conditional covenant because there is no everlasting Levitical priesthood and there has not been an everlasting Davidic king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem for the past 2,000 years. Has there? No, because people like to divorce this from 1 Kings 9.5 and Jeremiah 22.30, the context of a conditional covenant which was broken. So... The seventh authenticating measure of the true gospel. There is an order of Malkitzedic priests here on earth today. I mean, the master's prayer is pretty clear about that, isn't it? Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Trying to isolate Hebrews chapter 8 verse 4 as a proof text. Divorced from the seven preceding chapters in Hebrews to make a Levitical point is disingenuous. And that's what people do. The eighth authenticating point, excuse me, authenticating point of the gospel, the Malkitzedic priesthood of believers are the true temple. 
The temple that the Temple Institute and the pseudo-Jews have planned will in fact be not the true temple, but the abomination that Yahweh has told us about in his scripture to be avoiding. Because he has already chosen his temple. He has already chosen his kingdom of Melchizedek priests. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10. And the ninth authenticating point of the gospel, you cannot add to an already blood-ratified covenant. Exodus 24, 7 and Galatians 3, 15. So if the covenant was blood-ratified, the book of the covenant in Exodus 24, verse 7, that means that you cannot add anything to it. So then when a law is mentioned, come up here and receive this law also, In Exodus 24, verse 12, can that be part of the already blood-ratified covenant? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It cannot be. It is another law that is not part of the blood-ratified covenant. You have to deal with that. And people that have the opposition to the true gospel will skim over these things. And as I've read commentaries institutionalized church commentaries, they skim over the book of the law, don't even address it. Don't even address it. You have to address what is the book of the law. You have to. You cannot bypass it. And finally, the tenth authenticating point of the true gospel, the context, the context, the context of Galatians is the dichotomy between the book of the law that we're freed from And the new covenant given as Torah, the book of the covenant, which Messiah's blood has enabled us to be partakers of the covenants of promise, which we were strangers cut off from, that commonwealth of faith, Ephesians 2, that we are now part of. This is amazing. Now, the text of Galatians is one of the oldest in the Brit Chadashah. But we need to identify Galatia before we even get into the text. Number one, was it an ethnic group of people? Or, number two, was it a geopolitical group of people? The context and the backdrop to Galutia, Galatians, is so important. Because what we have is a relatively new, non-Jewish group of believers in Yahushua. Now, Luke mentions Galatia in Acts 16.6 and Acts 18.23. So, Luke's Acts is our principal external witness to the events surrounding the composition of the text of Galatians. So, the question that you have to ask is Luke's Galatians and Shaul's Galatians exactly the same? Because Luke commonly used local designations for cities, places. So his Galatians would seem to be ethnic Galatians living in northern Galatia. Whereas Shaul, he uses Roman provincial names and designations, so his Galatians would seem to be those Galatians living in the province of Galatia, but in the south. So there's a difference Is it Shaul's Galatians or Lucas' Galatians? And that's where we come in with what's called the Northern Galatian theory, 
which is Luke, and the southern Galatian theory, Shaul. And people will dive right into Galatians, and they won't even understand that you've got to deal with the two theories. Otherwise, you're going to bring Acts 15 in when maybe you really shouldn't be bringing it in. Because that's a game changer. Whether you understand that Galatians is northern theory or southern theory is going to set the whole premise for your teaching. And I don't even people see people addressing this. So we've got to spend the time here before we jump in. Otherwise, what? We're no different than we were in the institutionalized church, just regurgitating and repropagating doctrines of men. So let's look at it. The Northern Galatian theories proponents place the composition of the epistle after the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. It's assumed from this viewpoint that Paul was delivering the Jerusalem decree to the Galatians. He'd gone and visited the Jerusalem High Council, Acts 15, and then he was going to Galatia and he was giving them that decree. That's the Northern Galatian or the Luke Northern Galatian theory. Look at Acts 16 verse 4. Maaseh Shlechim. 16.4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep that were ordained by the Shlechim apostles and Zechanim elders who were at Yerushalayim. But then you've got the Southern Galatia theory. Now those proponents would include myself. But why would I include myself with a Southern Galatian theory? Well, you need to know. Because I believe that Shaul wasn't writing to ethnic Galatians. But he was writing to believers who lived in the Roman province of Galatia prior, prior to the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. Which changes everything. It changes everything. Because Shaul was ill, was he not? Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 14. Look what he says. And in my trial that was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject me. So he was, had a physical ailment in his body, in his flesh. But the northern Galatians theory, well, you've got to deal with the mountains. And, and how would a sick man travel through those mountains and traverse those mountains? That's a, that's a big problem for me. I don't think he did. I think he was in the south. There's no direct mention also of Acts 15 and the council ruling on the non-Jewish believers entering the faith. It's not mentioned at all throughout Galatians. So this points to a provincial populace prior to the Acts 15 meeting to me. But then I go further and I dig in deeper. Because there's no way I'm going to teach you Galatians without understanding the southern theory or the northern theory and being absolutely convinced that I know what I'm teaching. So there's five other things that I want to bring forth, five contrasts between Galatians 2 and Acts 15 that we need to mention that to me solidify why I will go with the southern Galatian theory that the Galatians was composed and written prior to Acts 15. Number one, look at Galatians 2. Shaul went up to Jerusalem by revelation. But in Acts 15, Shaul was sent by the congregation in Antioch. Well, that doesn't match up, does it? Number two, Galatians 2, Shaul was accompanied by Titus. 
But in Masa Shlechim 15, Acts 15, some others accompanied Shaul. Number three, Galatians 2. The leadership included Yochanan. Yet in Acts 15, Yochanan isn't even mentioned. Number four, Galatians 2. The meeting was private. But in Acts 15, the meeting, it was very public. And number five, Galatians 2. No decrees are mentioned. Acts 15, the decrees are the whole context, right? So I'm going with a Southern Galatian theory that Galatians was written prior to Acts 15. And that sets my context. And I'm convinced of that because I've done my due diligence and now I can proceed. Galatians 2.1. Then 14 years after that, I went up again to Yerushalayim with Barnava and took Titus with me also. So Galatians 2.1 refers not to Acts 15, but to Shaul's relief mission in Acts 11 verse 29. And the light bulbs come on. And now everything's going to start to unravel and become very clear to me. And that's just the way I study. I'm very, very logical. I love the Bible. I love the text. And I'll listen to people, but I always go, well, hang on a minute. What does the scripture say? I hear what you're saying, and I understand that tugs on your heartstrings. And yes, we want that to be so. But does the Bible really say that? Because I don't see an oral law, written law dichotomy in the book of Galatians anymore, now that I've matured. When I was in my young 30s, that tugged on my heartstring, and it gave me permission to enter into the Messianic movement. And then in the Messianic movement, I didn't see much faith. When I was in the institutionalized church, I was surrounded by great men and women of faith. And I've been sad to say, a decade in the Hebrew Roots movement, I've seen little faith and little moving of the Ruach. Why? Because the law is not of faith. And now I understand. We're behaving like children in our relationship to Torah. We're using it to beat up people, to judge people, and to be religious and self-righteous. Are we converted? Because if I'm converted, I've been emancipated. Not to lawlessness and syncretism, but emancipated in maturity to covenant Torah. And now I am an heir of all of the promises that my father gave to Abraham that Yahusha's blood has ratified and enabled me to come in contact with. It's a maturity of faith and the power of the indwelling Ruach HaKodesh. And Avraham did Yahweh's Torah, and he never knew a Levite, and he never saw a tabernacle. Look at Acts, and we see Galatians 2.1. Then the Talmudine, excuse me, Galatians 2.1. Then 14 years after, 
After that, I went up again to Yerushalayim with Barnava and took Titus with me also. So Galatians 2.1 refers not to Acts 15, but to his relief mission in Acts 11 verse 29. Then the Talmudim, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief to the Israelite brothers who dwelt in Yehuda, which also they did, and they sent it to the Zachanim by the hands of Barnava and Shaul. Do you see that? That's amazing to me. I love it. So we then find that Shaul visits Galutia, Galatians, in Acts 13 to Acts 14. So now let's dig deeper and get into the history of Galatians. Are they just a bunch of pagans out there messing around with Christmas trees? Well, no. They're not. There's so much more. Galutia. Galutia. It means the exiles of Yah. The Hebrew root for dispora. Those in the dispersion is galut. Galut. So galut. Yah means the exiles of Yah. Now, according to Shimon Peter, Kiefer, Shimon Kiefer, these were the chosen people of the dispersion that were then scattered through modern-day Turkey and the former area of Aramea. Now, we have to understand that language... Now, I I differ here than the, the liberals of today's school of thought. I do not believe that language evolves. I believe that language entropies. It entropies. It devolves, if you will. So, galut reordered into the English term Gentile. Because language entropies. So Galut dispersed, reordered over time, millennia, into the English term Gentile. You have the reforming of the L and the T and the adding of the N. So etymologically, it has ties to the exiles of Israel in the Tanakh. Isn't that amazing? So the area of Galatia had populations of both houses of Israel in the first century. The ten northern tribes exiled into the Galut, which sets the context. Look at Melachim Bet, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. Naphtali was first taken captive from the Galilee. And then Melachim Bet, 2 Kings 17.5, we find that 10 Israel, the 10 northern tribes, are then galut, put into the dispersion. They're dispersed. In Yaakov, in James chapter 1, verse 1, it says thus, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So in 50 of the common era, all of the tribes were still in the galut, in the dispersion. Matichahu, 15 verse 24, Yahushua says thus, I was not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he said. And then Luca, chapter 19, verse 10. For the Ben-Adam, the Son of Man, has come to seek and to redeem that which was lost and cast away. This sets the whole context for me. We're not looking for a bunch of pagans playing with Father Christmas. We're looking for the exiled house of Israel in the galut, the dispersion. 
Now we can turn to the Apocrypha in history. Apocrypha, of course, comes to us from a Greek word that means hidden or secret. Apocrypha, what is hidden and what is secret. Now, the Apocrypha actually was included in the original 1611 King Jimmy. It was. And it wasn't until 1885 that that dastardly man, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and even today, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I mean, come on. I mean, come on, ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if I ever see that guy, I mean, talk about tearing their robes into ten pieces. Well, back then in 1885, the Archbishop of Canterbury, well, he decided to throw out 14 books of the King Jimmy. 14 books of the Bible, let's just toss them out. It wasn't until 1880 that the American Bible Society thought, well, that's a bloody good idea. Why don't we do the same? Really? Really? Yeah. 1880, they followed suit, and they thought, ah, let's toss 14 books out as well. Nobody would know any different. The evangelicals won't have a bloody clue. They'll go off trotting down the road in lawlessness, and they won't have a clue. And they don't, do they? See? 1880, First Maccabees 12, it records... Those scattered in Sparta or in the Galut, the dispersion, were the Jews' brothers, the descendants of Avraham. How about that? Those scattered in Sparta or the Galut, the dispersion, were the Jews' brothers, the descendants of Avraham. So during the Corinthian War, and people don't even realize why the book of Corinthians in here, not understanding that there was even a Corinthian War. During the Corinthian War in 395 before the Common Era, that even sets the context for Corinthians. I mean, I just wanted to learn. How come my pastor never told me this stuff? Before we got into Corinthians, where we could do anything that we want and go to the meat market and have a good old pork sandwich. I mean, <laughs> I just, why couldn't you just give me some history? Give me some context. So maturity and having a little bit of season and a lot of bloody salt has told me that you've got to spend your time on the introduction before you get into the text if you're going to do service to the children of Yahuwah. And we're all children of Yahuwah. During the Corinthian War, 395 before the Common Era, Sparta warred against four allied states, Thebes, Athens, Corinth, and Argos. Now, Shaul was visiting the ten exiled tribes and giving them the good news of what? The restored covenant, a return to the book of the covenant Torah that was blood ratified by Yahusha, setting them free, emancipating them from the exile, the Herodian, Levitical, priestly, and rabbinic decrees, and returning them as heirs into the covenants of promise. That's the context of this wonderful, wonderful book that I'm so excited to dig into. Because it was the tribe of Dan, the Danoi, who fought in the Trojan War and were among the original founders of the Greek states. So when you read your New Testament and it says the Greeks, it's not talking about the Greeks like we're off to Crete on a sailboat today. 
It's talking, who are the Greeks of the Brit Hadashah? None other than the dispersed of the house of Israel in the Galut. Does that make sense? Because we have to understand the context of the tribe of Dan, the Danoi, and the Trojan War, and that they were the original founders of the Greek states. This is amazing stuff. So when I see Greeks in the Brit Hadashah, I'm not thinking about olives and um, falafel and all of that. I'm thinking about hummus. (laughs) Israeli feta. So with all that, I'm going with the Southern Galatian theory. Is that okay? Shaul's Galatian audience was Greek-speaking. Let's talk about that. Because the messianic claim that Shaul wrote, and I understand, it pulls on your heartstrings. Oh, yes, it's the Aramaic. Oh, well, he wrote to them in the Hebrew. You know, over a decade ago, I went with that one too. Because I wanted to believe that Galatians was written in the Hebrew. I wanted to believe that Galatians was written in the Aramaic. I'd even accept Andrew Gabriel Roth's Aramaic translation until I got wise and realized that it doesn't exist in history. It's a back translation. It's a back translation, and in all integrity, I cannot propagate that because there is no text in circulation that it comes from. It's a back translation. So even though it pulls at my heartstrings a decade or so ago, now... In maturity, I have to go, no, because when I look at the weight of Scripture and the evidence of Scripture, that is what I must go with, not with my heart, not with my heart, because I'm not opposed to the institutionalized church so much that I will just gravitate to anything Hebraic anymore because I've grown up, because I've matured, and that takes time. And now praise Yahweh that he still enabled me to continue to teach and to edify the congregation of Israel. So then I bring that experience to you and hope that we can work together as children and co-laborers of the Bessorah because we're together. And that's what I love, the conversations that we have. But there is this claim, this false claim in the Hebrew roots and messianic movement that Shaul wrote to them, the Galatians in Hebrew or Aramaic. But it's an Eastern Roman province. It makes no sense at all because Greek would have been the predominant language in Galatia. Hebrew and Aramaic as a composition language doesn't even enter into the equation. Aside from that, the Greek would have, there would have been other local dialects. There would have been Phygerian, there would have been um, Lacosian. And apart from recent attempts by misguided messianics for a Hebrew or Aramaic origin, it's never, it's never been proposed from anyone in serious academic circles. Never has. The date of the composition, between 50 and 52 of the Common Era. You see, the Galatians Shaul is writing to are the Galatians Shaul ministered among in Masa Shlachim, Acts chapter 13 to Acts chapter 14. And his visit to Jerusalem in Galatians chapter 2 was when he sent relief to the brethren who lived in Judea 
after his first missionary journey. So what was the location that Shaul was in as he was writing to the Galatians? Well, he was writing to them from Syrian Antioch after the events described in Marseh Shlachim, Acts chapter 14. So you have a gap of about one to two years before Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem Council. And that's key. I like a bit of cucumber. It's very Israeli. (laughs) Even in my water. Let's talk about the bloody Judaizers, shall we? Oh, you Judaizer. How many got that? Oh, my goodness. I mean, once Calvary Chapel started to hear, oh, Matthew Nolan's keeping cut. Oh, bloody Judaizer. Don't want to listen to anything he says. He's a Judaizer, and then you write you off, right? But what is the context of a Judaizer? Instead of observance of the book of the law... They thought the book of the law should be added to the faith in Yahushua. They argued Shaul wasn't an authentic shaliach. He wasn't authentic in his apostleship. And that the Galatians, who'd once received him and his message, well, they were now slipping away. So the Judaizers insisted on observance of the book of the law and that it should be added to the faith of Yahushua and that you weren't a covenant entry. You would not gain covenant entry unless you were circumcised, adhere to the book of the law as they interpreted it in their community. It's very interesting to note because the works of the law, this phrase that we see in scripture, in Galatians particularly, works of the law, we can now understand it from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Manuscript Q... I knew I'd forget it. It's QMMT, something like that. Anyway, there's a Dead Sea Scroll manuscript that contains the phrase works of the law. And it tells you the context of works of the law. It's connected to the community's interpretation of covenant entry as interpreted through the book of the law. Understand in Qumran there were dozens of of manuscripts of the book of the law contained and housed in the the jars there. So we can understand now, manuscript 4QMMT, it came back to me, tells us that the book of the law is what they're talking about when they say works of law. Because down in Qumran, they interpreted how you were a part of the community was interpreted through their halakha as it pertained to the book of the law, which they had predominantly there in their jars. The book of the law is the text that they have more of than any other text in Qumran. Dozens of copies of the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Numbers, Bar Midbar, all book of the law text is how they interpreted your entry or halakha, their halakha and your entry into the community. So we can understand that with Galatians 3.10 where it actually calls out book of the law in the context with works of the law and everything starts to unravel. Does that make sense? Okay, because I like to stick with the text. We understand that Shaul, well, he was a highly learned Pharisee. Rav Sholiak Shaul, and of course he wrote Galutia. Galutia. 
Galatians 3.10 identifies by name the context of law and works of law throughout Galatians. It's written, it's juxtaposing the book of the law and its proponents, halakha, or works of the law in which they identified their community, that very book of the law, and accompanying maintenancing works of law, which came 430 years after the Malkitzedic promise, the covenant with Abraham, which of course was of faith. The book of the law came 430 years later. The law is not of faith. It was imposed upon them, the book of the law. But the book of the covenant, the Malkitzedic covenants of promise, they are of faith. Look what it says. For as many are as followers of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. There's your context. Look at Galatians, Galucha, chapter 3 and verse 17. More context for the book. And this I say, that the covenant, book of the covenant, that was confirmed by Yahweh through Moshiach, the law the book of the law, that came 430 years later, cannot nullify the Avrahamic Brit. The law, the book of the law, that came 430 years later, is not connected at all to the covenants of promise, the book of the covenant. That's clear. So that it should be make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is from the law... If you think you can get your inheritance that's connected from Abraham through the book of the law, you are surely misguided. It is no more by the word of promise, if you believe that, because the inheritance of the covenants isn't the book of the law that came 430 years later. Does that make sense? The promises and the inheritances are the book of the covenant that are connected to Avraham, the book of the law that came 430 years later, was imposed, and there are no inheritance promises contained within it. So, verse 19, what purpose then does the book of the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. So, the part of Torah that was 430 years later, yes, it's still Torah, but it's the part of Torah that came 430 years later, it was added because of some kind of transgression. What transgression would that be? The sin of the golden calf. Look at verse 3. Excuse me, um, not verse 3, we're at verse 19. Until the Zerah, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made. Until, what does until mean? Well, I'm going to do this until, I mean, something's going to change, right? Impending change. And people say, you can't make a change in the Torah. There's no change in the Torah. Genesis 49, 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, until the Zerah, the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Until means to a moment of impending change. There's your change in Torah. Not a change to lawlessness, but a change to heir covenant status. Are we a child or have we matured and been emancipated? What do you do with that emancipation? Do you go into lawlessness? 
paganism and syncretism? Well, that's what the institutionalized church has taught you. Or do you use that emancipation and return to covenant Torah, the Torah of Abraham, the Shabbat, the feast, the dietary requirements, and your inheritance? Or do you ignore your emancipation, ignore your emancipation, behave like a child, and interpret Torah through the lens of Judaism and rabbinicism? Because that's what I did for over a decade, and that's what I taught for over a decade. Based upon what? Not the text, but based upon Judaism, its interpretation, and how it had infiltrated the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. But the law is not of faith. And finally, being around such little faith for over a decade, I realized that there was so much more when we come back to the covenants of faith, the covenants of faith. So we see, until the zirah, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made, and heavenly malachim through the hands of a mediator ordained it. You see, Malkitzedic Torah is distinct from Levitical Torah. And that's the point. Rav Shaliak Shaul understood this because he had encountered Yahusha. And Yahusha is the key to understand this. You have to have encountered Yahusha. And there's a whole bunch of people out there that just haven't encountered Yahusha. You've got to have encountered him and the transformation that he's done in your life. Otherwise, you're never going to understand it. Woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. You've omitted the weightier matters of Torah. It's the Torah of weight. You see, you omit the weightier matters of Torah. It's the Torah of weight is the book of the covenant. It's the weightier matter. The Torah of light or the Torah of weight. Not intensity as in heaviness, but the heavier matter because it's blood ratified. There's a balance that you must understand. Covenant fidelity Torah, the law of weight mentioned here can be no other but covenant Torah. It is not the Levitical nomos ergon, carnal book of the law, the law of works. Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness comes by the law, the book of the law, then Yahusha died in vain. Righteousness cannot come by the book of the law. Righteousness comes because Yahushua paid the blood ratification price of the covenant between the pieces. Galatians 15, that enters you back in to the covenants of promise and connects you back to the oath that Yahweh swore to Abraham in Genesis 12. And you'll be a blessing to all nations. A blessing to all nations. You see... The context is a Jewish, rabbinic, ironic conflict with Israel in exile. Was Torah to be proclaimed and interpreted through the Aaronic priesthood using the book of the law as it had been imposed since the fall of Israel at the golden calf? Well, the Messianic movement would say yes. And I also did for over a decade. And Judaism would say yes, as they have for over 2,000 years without Yahushua. But I'm converted, and I know that Yahushua 
has made me identify with Torah differently and given me a legal change of status in relationship to Torah. That my relationship to Torah cannot be, will not be ever the same as Judaism's relationship to Torah. It cannot be because Yahushua changed something in me. And then because he changed something in me, he changes my status legally in relationship to Torah. I am no longer a slave. I have been emancipated, and now I am an inheritor of the covenants of promise, the book of the covenant, and I return to the Torah of Abraham because I have a Malkizedek high priest. I'm not emancipated to lawlessness as the institutionalized church misled me for nearly a decade, but I was also misled for over a decade in the Hebrew roots messianic movement, and I was a part of misleading people as well and I repent for that and because of maturity and seasoning and repentance that I stand before you now excited to attack the narrow road that leads to life of covenant Torah fidelity but will I have to put up with the same accusations that Rav Shaliaksha all did he's teaching lawlessness And they brought him up to Jerusalem and he said, heaven forbid, no such thing. These accusations are not true. All scripture, including the book of the law, all scripture is good for reproof, edification. But not all scripture is covenant, ratified Torah. Is what we must learn, and that takes maturity. The crux of the issue is this what is agreed to covenant contained in Malkitzedic Torah commandments versus what was imposed law contained in carnal commandments? <laughs> contained in Levitical ordinance that were only supposed to be until the time of Reformation when the seed had come. And the time of Reformation, it has come because I'm a recipient of it. I was lost in the nations. I'm a recipient of that Reformation. And I know I've had a legal change of status in regard to the Torah, Hebrews 9.8. This Gelucha is a book of the law, book of the covenant, dichotomy. We must understand that. Kepha, Bet, 2 Peter 2.19. While they, the Judaizers, promised them liberty, they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. They are overcome by sin, and that brought them into the book of the law. Did it not? For... If after they had escaped the pollutions of the Olam Hazer, this world, through the Da'at, the knowledge of the Master and Savior, Yahushua HaMashiach, and if they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. You didn't get saved. I didn't get saved to go back under the, con- the curses contained in the book of the law. I didn't get saved to be managed by a school 
master. I was saved so that I could return as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to the covenant of Torah, which is the covenants of promise that I was a stranger from, Ephesians 2. So I relate to Torah as an emancipated son and a full heir. That is what I do. And that is only possible through the Zedek priesthood of Yahusha. It's amazing. Hebrews 7.12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also of the Torah. And they sidestep that verse. Hebrews 7.16. Malkitzedek is made not after the law of the carnal commandments. That's the book of the law. Hebrews 7.18, there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. A disannulling of the book of the law. Not to lawlessness. Yah forbid. Verse 19, for the book of the law, the law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope a return to covenant Torah, Hebrews 8, 6, did. The book of the law didn't make the Torah perfect, did it? It was permissive. It was never Yahweh's perfect will. But the bringing in, the better hope of the book of the covenant, did bring back perfection and would enable the gathering in of the Galutia, the Galatians, and that's the message that Paul is able to communicate to them. And it is inspiring. Ephesia 2.12. That at that time ye were without Mashiach, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Yah in the world. You see... Jews went out from Jerusalem. They went out teaching circumcision was required for covenant entry into Israel and that the Goyim, Ephraim, could not have table fellowship with the Jew unless you were Brit Milah, circumcised and kept the book of the law. But Rav Shaliach's purpose for writing to the Galutia, the Galatians, was to persuade them not to put themselves under the heavy yoke of the book of the law, thereby being subjected to Levitical requirements which adulterated the Besorah, the gospel, the good news of the reinstituted covenant Torah of Messiah and the promises of Abraham. And we find ourselves today with the same conflict with the institutionalized church and the Hebrew roots and messianic movement. But Yahweh's people are waking up and it is powerful and it's exciting for such a time as this because Galatians were in conflict with those from Jerusalem that promoted the Levitical book of the law. And we understand that book of the law, Galatians 3.10, is the law that was a schoolmaster. It was imposed, Hebrews 10. It was set aside, Galatians 2.21. It was reconciled, that book of the law, Ephesians 2.16. It was the law that was not of faith, Galatians 
3.12. It was the law, that book of the law, that was added, Galatians 3.19. That Levitical law, Romans 4.14, was not of grace, not of righteousness, and you can never be an heir through the book of the law. Romans 5.20, you entered in alongside something. Hebrews 7.6, the book of the law is the carnal commandment. Colossians 2.14, it's the book of the law that was nailed to the tree. In the Messianic movement, we've had for over a decade people saying it, it's the, it was the law of um, adultery, the law of the adulterous bride that was nailed to the tree. I even taught that. When it came to Torah portion Nasso, for a decade I taught that. I understand your doctrine. And I understand the institutionalized church doctrine because I was a youth pastor and I taught it and I've taught the Torah portion over 500 times. I understand the doctrine. But it doesn't say in Numbers chapter 5, the law of the adulterous bride, anything about it being a witness against you, does it? In Colossians, it says it's the writing that was a witness, the handwritten writings that were against us, right? Then you go to Deuteronomy chapter 31, and you find what is against you. What is against you, against you, against you, as a witness against you, a witness against you? Deuteronomy 31, it's the book of the law that is the witness against you. It's the very same language. You connect it through the Bible, and I don't listen to the doctrines of men anymore. Show me in the text where it tells you that the adulterous bride is against you, a witness against you. Or does it say in Deuteronomy 31 that the book of the law was placed outside the Ark of the Covenant as a witness against you because you broke the covenant? And if it's called an Ark of the Covenant, what's inside of it? The book of the... And then you say, but there's the book of the law and the book of the covenant are synonymous. Then why does Yahweh say that the book of the covenant and the book of the law is a witness against you? And place it outside the ark of the covenant if they're the same. Why would he do that? Every word in scripture is for us. Every word. And if he wanted something to be the same, he would make it the same. That's the Yahweh I know. But the Yahweh that religion, well, that Yahweh tells you to go and have Christmas and Halloween and to do the traditions of the elders. That's not the Yahweh that I serve. Every word that he speaks is for a specific purpose. Every genealogy, every number, everything in Scripture is there for us to search out and unearth. And he certainly didn't put Sefer Chabarith, and Sefer Torah in there for us to do what? Say it synonymous. He didn't do that. Otherwise, he would have used the same words and he would have called it the Ark of the Law. These are the things that we understand. Ephesians 2, 5, 15, excuse me. It was the book of the law that was abolished. And Galatians 3, 18 there is no inheritance if you stay in the book of the law because Abraham's inheritance is in the book of the covenant. But it comes down to we have been bewitched. 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 And I am surrounded. I am surrounded more and more by men and women of faith. And I love you guys. 
I love you guys because I see your faith. And I was wondering for a decade in the Hebrew Roots movement, why do I see such little faith? I know that we are so much more truth than the institutionalized church. I know that we, we shouldn't be into syncretism and lawlessness, but why is there such a lack of faith? Why is there such religion and heaviness and judgment? And you go into some of these congregations, the spirit of heaviness and judgment and looking at you and do you have a head covering? Oh, you're, you don't have a beard. You look like you shaved it. Oh, where are your seats? Seats mine are longer than yours. Oh, you know? I'm like, but what about the conversion? Oh, foolish Galucha, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Since Yahushua HaMashiach has clearly been set forth. He's been set forth before our eyes. He's been impaled among us, has he not? He has been impaled. His testimony of being crucified is amongst us. That's the difference. That's the difference. I'm now surrounded by the Kedoshim. We've experienced him because of his crucifixion. Galatians, don't be put under a Judaic Levitical spell. Yahushua has been clearly revealed before your very eyes. He transferred you from an imposed book of the law to an agreed-to blood-ratified covenant given as Torah on the basis of better promises. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. They love to mistranslate that one in the King Jimmy. Shaul truly, truly was not trying to make Gentiles into book of the law observing Jews, but to introduce both Jews, Gentiles, and those in the Galutia to the covenant of Yahushua, a return to book of the covenant, which is fidelity, pistis, faith. It's Torah. It's the rightly dividing point of Torah, and your relationship to it as a legal right standing kings and a kingdom of priests. Your priests in a kingdom. Implemented Hebrews 7.11 by the death, burial, and resurrection of Yahushua because he's our high priest. And that makes all the difference. I'm so excited for this time for us. It's truly a time of seasoning. It's a time of maturing and it's only by his grace only by his grace that we're enabled and being chosen why you why me how did we get chosen with this you could never make this stuff up you could never make this stuff up he had to move me halfway across the world and get me away from my generations. And the times that I have wanted to give up because of a lack of faith. But now I look at you all and you inspire me. You inspire me because of your faith and because you are relating to Torah in faith. Because the book of the covenant, that is of faith. Yeah. 
all that he has said we shall do. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. You looking for the mic? I'm going to have some of my Israeli cucumber and feta water. So we have a few questions. Um, the first point, I think it's important, is um, they're asking, what are the points of the covenant? How do we know what are the points of the book of the covenant? How, do you, how did you come to that being the book of the covenant? What points? The five points, uh, the proposal. And oh, right. Well, as you go through um, the whole of the, the scriptures... You always will see, even in the, the Brit Hadashah with Yahusha before he goes to be crucified, and then even in the book of Revelation with the wedding supper of the Lamb, you always see the common thread of the book of the covenant, the covenants of promise, is there's always a, a proposal. There's always an acceptance. There's always a covenant-confirming meal blood ratification, and then a direct connect attachment back to Abraham that identifies that this is the book of the covenant, the Malkitzedic covenants of promise. Because there's lots of covenants in the Torah. There's lots of covenants that you see. And in fact, we've done clearing up uh, covenant confusion where we see the, the, the Hebrew word Brit. Every time that you see the Hebrew word Brit doesn't mean covenant. And that's where we have to step back in maturity and look at what is being said through the Scripture. So that's the overalling threading of the needle. Oh, we got plenty. They're actually asking a lot tonight. Super. Um, what does Melchizedek mean? What does Melchizedek mean? Our king is righteous. Okay. Our king is righteous. Amen. Matthew, do you believe that the Jews who migrated and occupy Israel are not actually the Jews of Israel's descendants? Do you want me to restate that? Yeah, restate that one. Okay. Um, do you believe that the Jews who migrated and occupy Israel now are not actually Jews of Israel's descendants? Are they actually his descendants who are there now in Israel? You see, that's, a, that's, a, that's really worded very, very... The Jews who migrated, so then you're supposing that the Jews, Yahuda, migrated and then returned? I mean, I think I clearly, clearly taught, was it just um, the past couple of weeks? You just have to look and say, those that are in Israel right now, I believe 97%, it could be 92 they are self-stated Ashkenazi. So we go to the scripture and we find that Ashkenaz is not a Shemite. So they are not Shemites. That is very clear. They are Japhethites. And then when you track that back and you find that they also claim that the Ashkenazi are Caucasians, which means they're from the Russian steppes, which then connects you to the Turkic Mongol Asians that then converted to Judaism under the Khazarian kingdom, and you can connect that back. So that's really a truer statement than trying to answer something that is not actually phrased um, correctly. Off the top of my head. No, no, didn't mean any disrespect to whoever 
phrase that. But it's, it's a very complicated um, question to answer like that when really you can clearly answer it through the Scripture and just track who is Ashkenaz, right? Yeah, let's now continue with your questions, say, and then we'll go I've with got, the... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. We'll go so with the local... There, uh, yeah, that... Um, why are we called children, sons, heirs, and also the bride of Yahusha? What was Abraham's relationship to Yahuwah? Well, he was the benefactor of the oath. Yahuwah swore by no one higher than himself the oath covenant, which was an unconditional covenant of promise that he would be the inheritor and recipient of everything that the Father has. Everything which is from the realm of the Shamayim, that Malkit realm that Yahusha came down from. That is everything that Avraham and his heirs, his descendants, the nations, as Rav Shaliak Shaul tells us in Galutia, he's trying to connect us back to that. Now, the book of the law, that is not something that Yahweh had planned for his people. That was his permissive will, which is a clear distinction from his perfect will. In Galatians 3.19, where it says it was added for transgressions, it's plural and not singular. I've been approached with this as an argument that it wasn't just the golden calf since that's singular. Oh, I love it when people will literally latch on to one word. At the golden calf, there were multiple transgressions, plural, that were enacted under the one transgression that is called out that we call the golden calf. But that was the transgressions because of what was in their levine, their heart. So to, to, to just extract that one plurality there and build a, a doctrine off it, I think is disingenuous. It's like he, people going to the Hebrews 8.4 verse and saying, oh, you can't have priests here on earth. And they're ripping out the preceding seven chapters out of the context of Hebrews. I mean, I've, 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 I've been pretty, you know, over the past 20 years, had my fair, fair share of uh, go-arounds with, with different religious people. And I, I think experience shows you that you just got to you have to take time. You have to take time. And uh, that's important. Yes. Great questions, though. Really great questions. And that's the thing. I love how the iron sharpens iron. What we're going to do is we're going to deal with the questions on, on, li on the line, online, and then we have the local fellowship. Yes. Yes. Um, basically, uh, they're, they're kind of wrapping up, but they're just, you know, people are just saying, wow, you know, there's new people on there tonight, and they're just really saying thank you uh, for telling the truth and continuing in what you're doing. And uh, they're just very encouraged. And, and there is no questions. silly question. The only silly question is the question that you wanted to ask that you didn't ask. So when I answer, and sometimes I answer a little salty because that's my personality, I mean no disrespect to the people that phrase the questions because these are great questions. And I have a lot of respect for you for asking those questions because I do not have all the answers I do not know it all, and we are learning together, and I have got a whole lot more to learn, and I am super excited about being taught. And I'm taught oftentimes by his saints. 
by these questions and by us coming together. So, you know, I've learned my, my lessons of back in the day being prideful and thinking I knew it all because I certainly didn't. I don't want to be thrown back down on the carpet from whenceforth he picked me up. <laughs> yes, brother in the front here. Jews, you know, that, that are yes. supposedly Jews. Yes. Now, with the flip side, I remember at Sukkot, you said something about those Palestinian farmers. Can Correct. You, uh, can you elaborate on that? Because I was trying to actually tell someone. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, you see, there's this um, fallacy that when, when the Romans came down in 70 of the Common Era, that they took all of the Jews in the land and they enslaved them and they took them off. That's not actually true. The Romans never did that. They would bring in a prefect. They would bring in um, um, generals and prefects to manage the people in the land that they had then taken over. Then they would plunder the treasures, the Arch of Titus, case in point, of the land and bring it to Rome. But the inhabitants, the Jews, stayed in the land. Many of the Jews that stayed in the land were poor migrant farmers. They were attached to the land. That was everything for them. They harvested the olives. They threshed the barley and the wheat. And that was their life. And they attached to the land. And they stayed there after the Romans came in. Throughout all the changes over the centuries. Now when Islam came in in the 6th and 7th century, they imposed what was called the jizya tax. You were taxed as an infidel and you were allowed to stay in the land. But these migrant farmers, these Jews that had never left the land, they could not afford the tax. And therefore, they would lose everything that had been handed down to them along the generations. So what did they do so that they wouldn't lose their land and they wouldn't have to pay the tax? They converted to Islam en masse. And they stayed in the land. Now, when the Ashkenazi, they who say they are Jews and are not, under Theodore Herzl and the um, leadership, come into the land in the beginning of the 20th century, the historians, before they were prime minister and president of Israel, the first president and the prime minister of Israel, they were historians, David Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Ben-Zavi. And they stated, before Zionism took off and before the Hebron massacre, they stated the inhabitants here in the land are the original fehalim, a term for the migrant Jewish farmers that converted to Islam en masse because they didn't want to pay the tax and lose their lands. The inhabitants that are here currently, the so-called Arabs and Palestinians, are the real Jews. Our brothers. The prodigal son. That's the truth. But then the Hebron massacre changed everything in the Israeli perception of the Palestinians or the Arabs. And then the narrative changed from that point on because they realized that they could not absorb them into Zionism because of the Hebron massacre. And that's when it's changed. And we don't hear of that now, but this is historical truth. 
but it doesn't pull on our heartstrings. Right? So, yeah. And it's amazing when you look at many of these um, Facebook pages of the Messianics they, and um, Hebrew Roots, they absolutely say hateful things about Palestinians and Muslims. Hateful things, not realizing what is hidden is about to be revealed. Yeah, amazing stuff. Because really, what is hidden is they that say they are Jews are not. And those that have been enslaved by the Ashkenazi for 70 years are actually coming to Yahusha in droves. You know how many Muslims and Palestinians are coming to Yahusha, have been visited by Yahusha in the night in visions and dreams? It's amazing. Do you know how many Ashkenazi those who say that Yahusha is being boiled currently in excrement are coming to faith? No. Who is your brother? Mm, these are good questions. Well, I want to say amen to that. Last, oh, last year um, during Sukkot, we were in Jerusalem, and we connected with a lot of, I say this in quotes, Arab believers who were, who were having incredible effective ministry. Uh, ministry in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank and, and so forth. So anyway, I just want to say Amen. That. That's exactly it. And that yeah. doesn't get, that word doesn't get out enough. No. And even while we were sitting there, we weren't in this, we, we weren't where we are now in terms of what we know, but as they were kind of gently sharing some things with us, we both, Kevin and I just kind of looked at each other and went, oh, there's something else going on here. And so we're, we are so grateful that the Father has now brought some of this, more, this information to help make sense of that experience we had. But my question is actually uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And that has been kind of an anchor passage to say, see, the, the, you know, all of the law until heaven and earth pass away. Um, not one jot, not one tittle will be, you know. So I, I, would, I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit in light of this understanding, especially well, the part about he who teaches yes. <laughs> the least of these commands. Could you talk about that? That's an excellent, excellent point. In fact, I believe if we go, now again, I think I've gone into this further before, so I'm running, running off the top of my head, so it's not going to be as detailed as um, it should be. But remember, when it's talking about the context of the book of the law, we have in Deuteronomy chapter 30... Um, we have that um, the context of the heavens being a witness. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against yeah. you that I have set before you life and blessing and cursing. So the heavens and the earth contextually are a witness to them, a witness that they have been put under the imposed book of the law. That we have to understand. That is interconnected. Then we have to understand that when Yahusha was crucified, what happened? Did something change in the heavens and the earth? Well, yes. The day ceased to be, and it became night, and the earth was broken at the very blood ratification. Now, now you, can, you can bypass that and pretend that didn't happen and not connect it back with the book of the law. But you have to understand that now when we get into Matichahu chapter 5, verse 17, we're going to take it in the context of that because that is very huge. Because now when I read in Matichahu chapter 5, verse 17, we have to understand that 
what has always been in the Torah and that is now implemented does not abrogate the Torah. The change that has always been in Torah does not do away with the Torah, not one jot or tittle, because it's already been in the Torah. Genesis 49 verse 10. What does it say? It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until, again, meaning impending change, until he who comes to who the promises are given. So that impending change, Hebrews tells us that there's a change of the Torah, does not abrogate the Torah because it's already in the Torah. It's a change of legal status. Now, as children, and when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I spoke like a child often when I was teaching in the Messianic movement because I didn't have the maturity of going through the cycle. It took over a decade for me to be able to start to see this, that hang on a minute, the maturity I see now is to rightly divide the word of Torah. Does not abrogate Torah, but it allows you to divide between what is promised by faith Torah, Abraham, The impending change now implemented because Messiah has come, that now I am not under the schoolmaster, that which is imposed. Am I abrogating Torah? Yah forbid. I am rightly dividing it. Not one jot or tittle shall pass from the Torah. But we have to understand that the witness of the heavens and the earth that witnessed the change with the blood ratification that is included in Matthew 5, 17 to 19. And this is just a topical cursory off the top of my head. I could unpack this a whole lot more if I had some study material in front of me. So, you know, again, we got to be seasoned and not get all like bent out of shape. And when I speak to people, they get very hostile with me. But I think what that does is it kind of reveals what's going on inside. A serious vexing. Si, senorita. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Just going back to what you said with the 70 CE. Can you hear me? I can hear you. And you said that they had to switch over from being Judah into being, no, it wasn't Israel. They had to switch over because they couldn't, Islam. Does that mean? No, no, because Islam wasn't invented until the 6th century. So So what what is it? I I don't know. What's the question? The farmers could not afford the taxes. They didn't want to lose their homes. Oh, right, right, yeah. Okay, so they were converted over into Islam. Islam. Yes, but that wasn't until the 6th or 7th century. Century. Okay, Correct. are you saying that maybe some of the, um, the the droves of the people that are coming to America, their ancestors were really Judah? Maybe? The Syrians coming over to America? No, I wasn't talking coming, about any Syrians. That are maybe coming over, the Muslims? The Syri- no, I wasn't talking about that. The ones that are coming over, their ancestors were part of Judah, actually, instead of... I didn't say that. Okay, I was just asking you, could it be? 
I've, I haven't, I don't know how you would make that connection. I don't know how either, but it kind of gives us hope. Are you making that connection? I'm, I'm trying to, yeah. Based I, upon I'm, what? Just what you're saying. Oh, no, I didn't say anything like that at all, did I? Okay. Palestinians and Syrians, very different. Assyria, the Assyrian, the anti-Mashiach, Mashiach, Naged. Bad stuff associated with the Assyrians. Who is coming? The devil is coming. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's being it's silly. Every, every person has the opportunity to accept the Messiah. And the devil is coming for you. <laughs> if they're, if they're oh, Judah. I'm joking. Oh, she's already scared now. <laughs> oh, right, right. No, everybody has the same opportunity to accept Mashiach. And so those people who are coming over, they're just people who are lawless or they are without the truth. And so... Or they're bowing down at the moon god stable. Yeah, exactly. So whether they're Israel or Judah, it's really, you know, they 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 need Yeshua, and that's the main thing, right? Great stuff, though. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Let's close in prayer. Excellent questions. Just wasn't quite tracking where you were coming from. And I just wanted some clarity on that. So I was getting some odd looks in the back there. So anyway. Yahuwah, Yahuwah Elohim. Merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. Abounding in goodness and truth. Oh, Yahuwah, you are our Elohim. And we ask, Abba, that you would guard and keep us safe. And the Abba, that you would bless your people, Israel, as you gather us in from the nations, one from a town and two from a city. Abba, as we enter into Galutia, we ask, Abba, that you would meet us there in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.